in the 1860s, Sarah Pardee married William Winchester. Winchester was the heir of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, most well known for producing the Winchester Repeating Rifle. Well, years after they were married, William died, leaving Sarah a widow and an heiress of an incredible fortune from the firearms company. Sarah chose to move out west and purchased a somewhat modest eight-room farmhouse. She began to renovate and expand this small farmhouse, and this is where the story gets weird. Some reports at the time suggested Sarah was fascinated with the occult, that she believed she needed to build a massive house for all the souls killed by the Winchester rifle. And that if she didn't continually build this house, she would die. Well, others say, you know, that's more lore than truth. At the end of the day, Sarah just loved remodeling and she loved building projects. Well, regardless, from the time the work began on this farmhouse in 1886, construction continued nonstop, essentially, until her death in 1922. That's a total of 38 years. Sarah was no engineer, she was no architect, but she was the one spearheading this building project. So she would often, at the start of the day, come to the, the construction crew and the contractors she's working with, and without any blueprints or without any planning, she would just tell them what she wanted done that day based on how she felt, based on her preference on what she hoped the house would look like. And this is where it gets even weirder. The result is what is called today the Winchester Mystery House. Under Sarah's direction, the house grew to be seven stories high and sprawled out over six acres. Not that the house was on a six-acre property. The house is six acres. It's huge. It's not just that it's, it's big in terms of an organized house. Listen to some of the features and how disorganized this is. It had 47 fireplaces, 17 chimneys, six kitchens, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, and two mirrors. The, the mystery house includes countless secret passages. There's rooms on top of rooms for no apparent reason. There's doors that open into walls. One of the doors, if you walk through it, leads to an eight-foot drop-off to a kitchen sink down below. There's another one where if you walk through a doorway, you would fall 15 feet down to a garden. There are staircases that lead to nowhere, instead including some staircases that end in the ceiling. People debate the history and the purpose of some of the house's features. Some even suggest the purpose of the project was to create a house so confusing that even ghosts would get lost. But everyone agrees on at least one fact. Many of the bizarre twists and turns in this house are a result of decades of planning that had little to no long-term blueprints just going off of the feeling for the day. And while most people recognize that's not the best way to build a house, that is how many approach a very important area of life. Love. How should you love others? When we try to answer that question on our own, apart from what God says in his word, we end up basing our love on our standards. 
not God's. Love ends up driven by emotions or feelings that ebb and flow. Love becomes all about personal preference. How we love ends up like adding rooms to a house without any blueprints or planning. And even worse, sinful human beings actually tear up God's blueprint of love and replace it with one drawn in their own image. And we see the result of this all around us, don't we? A certain moral principle from God's word doesn't line up with modern understandings of love. Cut that out of the blueprint. Modify it. Just get it out. Change it so it better fits the surroundings. A certain biblical principle, like church discipline, doesn't gel with the world's understanding of love and tolerance. Just set aside those passages. Don't worry about that. Lighten up. Be a little more loving. Be a little more loving. This ungodly approach to love is often tempting to believers and to the church. But thankfully for us, we don't need to approach love the way Sarah Winchester approached her house. We have from our God a blueprint, a set of instructions, a picture of what Christian love looks like. And we see part of that picture in Romans chapter 12. So remember, Romans 12 as a whole describes genuine spiritual living. Verses 9 through 13 contain these 13 short statements, these almost proverb-like statements that give us application for how we love one another. And as we work through, we're, we're grouping these together into seven areas of life that biblical love impacts. So last week, we saw first love in your salvation, that the, the commands in Romans 12 are built on the foundation, the, the gospel structure Paul has built in chapters 1 through 11. God's love drives him to save us and to change us. And that same love then enables us and equips us as we love one another. A second, we looked at love and your sincerity. That as believers, we're not called just to fake love, but to genuinely care for one another. Not just to look good in front of others, but to have genuine, not hypocritical love for one another. And third, we consider love in your sin. That abhorring our sin and clinging to what God says is good is actually an expression of love for others. So as we continue to work through this passage, we ask ourselves, is this us? And we give God glory where we see him doing this in us. And we also ask, how can we further grow in our love for God and in our love for one another, in our lives and in the church. So look at God's word at Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. I want to read through verse 13. Paul writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this morning from Romans 12 verses 10 and 11, we will consider two more areas of your life that love impacts so that you will love others rightly to the glory of God. So continuing from last week, we'll look at fourth, love and your siblings, and fifth, love and your spirit. We begin with love and your siblings. Look at verse 10 in your copy of God's word. It gives us two exhortations to, to show us how practically to love one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing 
honor. So both of these commands are concerned with how believers relate to and love other believers. We see that specifically in the phrase he uses at the beginning of verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now in English, we have the word love at the beginning of verse 9 and then love again in verse 10. How Paul's writing, it's actually two different words. In verse 10, the word he uses for love at the beginning brings out a little bit of a different nuance. The word means be devoted to. This is a word of commitment. It's a word of resolve. And be devoted to who specifically? One another. In your life, be uniquely devoted to and committed to other believers in the church. Fellow members. One another. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here for obvious reasons, but, but just to be clear, you can't obey this command in isolation. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity that enables you to fulfill and obey verse 10. We need the church. We need other believers in our lives. God doesn't cause you to be born again onto an island. He causes you to be born again into a family. Love one another with brotherly affection. The word translated brotherly affection is a word I'm sure you've heard before. It's a well-known city in our country. Philadelphia, brotherly love. We have the joy of loving one another in a certain way. And to see how to love, Paul tells us, think about family, brothers, sisters, siblings, he uses the same kind of language in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity. So what kind of relationships picture the love that should permeate a local church? A family-like love. So in the body of Christ... And in the local church, what binds us together is not our backgrounds, it's not our preferences, it's not our traditions, our tribes, it's not our accomplishments or socioeconomic status. We relate to one another based on Christ, on who we are in him, on the glorious realities of the gospel and of God's word. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we aren't a bunch of strangers that happen to show up at the same place at the same time to hear the same sermon. We're a household, a family gathering to encourage one another. Speaking about what brings Jews and Gentiles together, Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So how does this image of loving siblings, brotherly love, household, how does this impact how we love? Well, among other things, think of it this way. You don't pick the family you're born into, do you? Right? You're born, and then you're surrounded by people you're to love as you grow because they're in the family. They're, they're part of the family, and some members of your family are easy to love and get along with, and others, maybe not as much, but they're in the family. And kids and students, you understand this if you have brothers or sisters, you don't get to pick and choose who they are. They just kind of show up one day in the house. And mom and dad say, hey, you're related. Love them to the glory of God, right? And if they annoy you and they bother you, they're still in the family, aren't they? Are they? Yes? Okay. 
So you still love them because that's what honors God. And yes, they drive you crazy sometimes, but they're family. So you love them. That's just like the family of God. Yes, you get to choose the church you're a part of, but even then in your life, there are some believers that you will probably find easier to show brotherly love to than others. Some Christians in your life are like, go with me here, marshmallows. Marshmallows, you know what I mean? They're sweet, fun, you want to sit with them by a fire, you want to enjoy their company. They're easy for you to love and do ministry with. Others aren't like marshmallows. They're more like sandpaper, right? You want to get close to them, but as you do, they kind of grate on you. They bug you. You can't seem to get too close without getting scraped. It hurts. You don't say say a name out loud, but in your life, you know what I'm talking about. And how does God command you to approach that believer with brotherly affection? In the church, we don't just love those we find easily lovable. We love who is in the family. Why? Because that person, just like you, is a blood-bought child of God. God has loved that person up to and including laying down his life for them, just like he did for you. Aren't you grateful that God doesn't love you just when you are lovable? That God doesn't just love you when you do everything right? when you obey perfectly. No, God loves you in Christ on your worst day. When we sin, when we struggle with the same things over and over again because we are his children. We're in his family. He is our father. So this Romans 12 love is the overflow of a heart that has experienced divine grace. It's like a fireplace bellow. You know, you, you, the, the two paddles, and then you kind of push them together, and it blows on a fire, and it makes the flame grow more and more, right? As the love of God, shown to us in the work of Christ, blows onto our hearts, it fans the flame of our brotherly love, and that flame grows as we mature in Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, listen carefully to these words. I think they're surprising. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need... For anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, at first glance, that strikes me as an odd verse. I feel like I do need someone to write me, someone to instruct me in how to love and how to show genuine brotherly love for others. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, you don't need a checklist. You don't need me to tell you all the ins and outs. You don't need me to tell you a bunch of items to add to your to-do list to make you love one another. Why? Because the blueprint of brotherly love is written on the Christian heart by God. This is his work and his people. And this is so encouraging to us. We don't love perfectly. Each of us has ways that we can and should grow in our love for one another, but the seed of brotherly affection is there. It's planted in you, Christian, by the Lord himself. And God has promised to do this work in his people. That's why a mark of a church that's full of believers is love. So what does brotherly love look like? How does this brotherly love actually express itself in the church? Well, look at the next phrase in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
The word honor means to show genuine appreciation. It's to esteem. And we tend to think of honor as show recognition for another's accomplishments. So in school, if a student is on the honor roll or the dean's list, it means that they get really good grades. They're being honored by the school or in a newspaper or publicly, whatever it might be, for how well they've done in school. At, at Cedarville, where Kristen and I went to college, if a student got a 4.0 GPA for the semester, they were given a mug. And it was a navy mug, and it had in big white letters, 4.0. It's a way of honoring those with academic excellence. And by the way, if you ever come to our house, and you get coffee or tea in a Cedarville 4.0 mug, all of them belong to Kristen. She is the one who got all of them. I brought none of those into our marriage. That's all her. And at times, in Scripture, we do see the word honor used to, in this way. It's to express genuine appreciation in the church because of what somebody does. We've seen this in Philippians 2, verse 29. Talking about Epaphroditus, Pastor Clint has preached on this recently. It says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Do you remember what Epaphroditus did? He's the man that takes the financial gift to Paul while Paul was in prison, and he nearly dies doing it. So Paul says, hey, honor this man for his faith and for what he's done. So as believers, we do seek to show genuine appreciation or honor to specific people in specific circumstances. But that's not all Paul is saying in verse 10. Look carefully at the word he uses, outdo. Paul is assuming that because believers are a family, they are constantly showing honor to one another. This is a regular, ongoing part of life in the church. This is the norm, not the exception in really unique circumstances. Outdo means be eager, be happy to, do it as much as you will. It's like a constant, friendly competition in the church to honor others more than honors others honor you. And when this happens, what is the general tone of the church? Encouragement. Love. We build one another up at church instead of tearing one another down. And to show this honor to one another, we apply Paul's words in Philippians 2.3. He tells us, because of Jesus coming in, in the flesh and Jesus' humiliation and his humility, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this changes how we relate to one another, how we show love to one another. So to apply Paul's words in verse 10 to show brotherly love and honor, here are three practical questions you can ask yourself. Three questions to help us as a church apply this verse. First, is there someone you can encourage? Is there someone you can encourage? Look for evidences of God's grace in the lives of other believers. Look for ways that you've seen spiritual growth in others around you. Maybe you've noticed someone is gifted in a particular area of ministry. Or maybe you've noticed that there's someone who's being incredibly faithful in some specific way. Where do you see God at work in those around you? Not just in your life generally, but among the local church, among believers. And where you see that with a quick statement, an encouraging word, if you want to be really old school, a quick handwritten letter, encourage them. 
Show honor to them. To honor someone is not, this is important, to honor someone is not to puff them up. This is not flattery. Flattery is a sin. That's not this. This is, the, the purpose of this is to give God glory and to encourage how you see his work on display in the lives of others. Second question, is there someone you can serve? Is there someone you can serve? Families help each other. What, God has given, what has God given you, and how can you humbly use that to serve and honor others? This could be a spiritual gift that the Lord has blessed you with. It could just be a skill or an ability God has gifted you that others don't have. So just think, what is something that you can do that many others can't? What is your thing? Is it food? Sewing? Car maintenance? Medicine? Maybe you're gifted at doing hair or you're good with technology. There, there's endless answers to that, but whatever it is, what is a way you can use that way that God has blessed you to show brotherly love and honor to someone else? In various churches Chris and I have been in, I started talking to her because I, I bounce things off her when I'm preparing for sermons, and we just, she just came up with example after example after example of ways that we've been shown love and seen love and honor in the church, and we just gave God glory. That's, that's what he does in the lives of his people, in the church. I mean, we've seen this in our lives and in others, everything from providing meals during times of trial or busyness, having people over who live far away from their family, welcoming them in for holidays, members doing hair or nails for others on special occasions. And this is just a quick sample. There are countless ways to live this out in the church. And here's a third question to apply verse 10. Are there any areas or attitudes in your life that do not reflect verse 10? Are there any areas or attitudes in your life that do not reflect verse 10. Think just for a moment, what would the opposite of brotherly love, brotherly affection look like? If we're to honor one another, what is the opposite of that? Gossip, slander, harboring a critical spirit or anger or spirit of disunity, grumbling, complaining. No church is immune from these things because churches are full of sinners. These are the weeds that begin small, but if left unchecked, they can grow in a church and choke out showing honor and love to one another. So we watch for these in our hearts, and when we see them, we repent, and we turn away from things that are threats to this brotherly affection. And building off of that just a little bit more, I don't want to talk like the world is all rainbows and roses. We live in a fallen world. And verse 10 is hard. And sometimes you will seek to obey verse 10, and you will show love and honor to somebody, and it will not be well received. What do you do then? What if you seek to love someone who is much more sandpaper than marshmallow, and then when you do it, no matter how you approach them, no matter how you come at it, it seems they just insist on scraping you. What then? You remember that God calls you to love others, and so you love others because you obey God, not to achieve a certain result. Later in this chapter, look at Paul's wisdom in Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, 18, Paul instructs us, 
if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know what that means? Sometimes it won't be possible. Sometimes it won't depend on you. You can't control someone else's heart, and you can't control someone else's response, but you can by God's grace and spirit working in you, you can control the aroma and flavor of your life. And now, and how this applies in difficult situations requires wisdom. Not every relationship is going to be ideal. But as far as it depends on you, Christian, love with brotherly affection. Show honor. And with God's help, we view one another through the lens of Christ. And as we grow in our love and affections for Christ, we also grow in our affections for one another. So Romans 12.10 isn't something we check off and say, got that. that this is a lifelong process. This is not accomplished in an afternoon. This is believers linking arms in the church and pursuing Christ together as siblings, as a family, day after day, week after week, and year after year. Love with brotherly affection and honor one another. That brings us to our, our next heading, verse 11, love and your spirit. Love and your spirit. Look with me at verse 11. Paul then says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So verse 10 describes our external love for others. Verse 11 then links that to our love for God. It's related, but he pivots. He focuses on our internal and external love and the expression of love for the Lord. So think of verse 11 like a painting made up of three colors. And Paul takes these three colors and he paints and weaves them together to create this final painting of different hues and shades of what love for God looks like in your daily life. But before we work through these three, I want to make a prediction. I'm not the prophet or a son of a prophet, but I'm a human being. So I'm going to guess that this is going to hit you like it hit me, which is one of these will likely come more naturally to you. You will probably, as you work through these, see one of these in various ways in your life, and then maybe one or two, you're going to look in the mirror and say, not as much. So as we look at this, just ask yourself, which of these comes most naturally to me? And where can I give God glory for where I see this in my life? And where, by God's grace and his spirit, can I still grow further? So the first shade of a genuine love for God is a working love. A genuine love for God is a working love. Do not be slothful in zeal. A person who is slothful is indifferent lukewarm. They have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the Lord because they, they just don't do that much. This is the person who is slothful in zeal is the ministry equivalent of a couch potato. They're a ministerial sloth. As an expression of your love for God, Christian, do not be spiritually lazy in your personal life or in the church. Zeal, the word he uses for zeal, it's like love. This is not a personality type. To have zeal is not to be bombastic and enthusiastic in the life of a party. It doesn't mean easily excitable. If, if you're more reserved and you think, oh, that just could never be me. I'm just not a very zealous person. That, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about zeal is eagerness that leads to action. 
It's an internal longing to serve Christ that overflows an external action for God and for others. The person who is not slothful in zeal is willing to get to work. They labor. They're diligent. They're Pastor Tom. Paul, Paul uses this word to describe how leaders should serve in the church. Romans 12, 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The zealous are believers who aren't sitting on the bench. They're in the game. They're faithful. They're not looking for every excuse as to why they can't serve, can't plug in, can't be faithful. Instead, they eagerly find ways to be involved, to be busy with the things of the Lord. Such a person isn't zealous just in how they serve God publicly, but also how they serve God privately. They live out Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This person has a zeal or earnestness for personal holiness and righteousness. So is that you? Are you eager, laboring and working and pursuing the Lord? Or are you just too busy, too distracted, too much on the calendar to really make this command a priority? A genuine love for God expresses itself in eager spiritual work. The second shade of a genuine love for God is a feeling love, a feeling love. He continues in verse, um, verse 11, be fervent in spirit. To be fervent is to have a heart that is inflamed. The word fervent was used at times to refer to boiling water. So if you ever put water in a kettle and you put it on the stove and then you hear it start to boil and it starts low and then it grows into a rolling boil and then if you ignore it, it can get, if it's in a pot or something like that, it rolls over in the boil and then splashes all over your stove. That's this word. It's boil for Christ. Have a genuine affection and love for God that includes burning for Christ in your spirit, in your spirit. Now, there's a bit of debate over how to interpret the word spirit. Some take this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Like, it's, it's saying you need to be doing this in the work of the Holy Spirit. Others take it more of a reference to the human spirit. That is our innermost being. It's the heart. And that latter view, our innermost spirit, is more likely. This is similar to what Jesus said in John 4.23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, that is the heart, the innermost being, and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Regardless of what interpretation someone takes, the application is the exact same. Why? Because you can only genuinely be fervent in your innermost being if you have been born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God calls us as believers to feel, to long for, to have an internal affection and fervency for our God. The love of God does something to us. It's not just academic. It's not just in the mind, as important as those things are. It's also not just doing. It captures our hearts, our very being and spirit. What does it profit a believer or a church to gain every nuance of right doctrine and to work tirelessly but to lose its love, to lose its affection? And this is so important for us to remember. Genuine love for God is working and feeling. 
It's doing and longing. Longing for Christ. Imagine with me two types of believers. The first is a believer who is spiritually disciplined. This person reads the word, memorizes scripture, diligent in their prayers, busy serving the church. Their hand is not just on the plow, they are pushing it. And they're pushing it hard. They never miss an activity. If you're looking for a volunteer, they're ready, willing, and able. But they feel nothing. There's no internal boiling for Christ. No affection. They can do spiritual grunt work all day long, but inside, they're drier than a desert. Do you possibly see yourself in this person? Maybe you find it easy to go through the motions, to do, to get things done, but do you boil for Christ? Praise God, you are not slothful. But be reminded, God wants not just your actions, but your heart. The, the second is a believer who is incredibly passionate. This person knows they're loved by God and they love God. Sermons about God's grace move them. They love to sing. Maybe they even get so into it, they stick a hand up every now and then and surrender to the Lord. They rest secure in the perfect work of Christ. And maybe every now and then a tear even comes to their eyes. They reflect on God's grace in light of their sin. But they don't do much. They don't really serve. They don't really want to commit. They aren't that consistent. They'll, they'll, they'll show up or they'll do something or they'll serve if it fits their schedule and all the stars perfectly align in just the right way. But they remind themselves regularly, it's okay, you aren't that spiritually disciplined. It's all right, you're not that involved because God's love doesn't depend on your works anyway. Or you may be in this person. You, you profess that you love the Lord. You feel it in the very fiber of your being. But are you spiritually lazy? Praise God you are fervent, but be reminded, God wants not just your feelings, but your obedience. So there is a third and final shade of a genuine love for God. It is a serving love. It is a serving love. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 11. Serve the Lord. The word translated serve is a form of a word you've possibly heard before. It's a form of doulos. Slave. In other words, we could translate it this way. As a slave, serve the Lord. Yes, genuine love for God is marked by hard work. And yes, genuine love for God is marked by fervency and internal affection in your spirit. And it's also marked by obligation. Necessity. The slave lives to serve the master. And in this case... Because of who the master is, the highest honor of the slave could be to lovingly serve this master, this king, this Lord. Turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we see this love for God, this longing to obey Drive Paul to live in a certain way. Look at Romans 1, verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Notice two realities in Paul's heart as he serves. Because of his love for God, because he is a servant of Christ, he is under obligation, 
and he is eager. We tend to think of obligation as a negative word. You're obligated to pay taxes. You're obligated, if summoned, to report for jury duty. But, but here, obligation is a joyful requirement. A believer is obligated to serve and obey Christ. So we can think of it just in human terms, thinking about the idea of a family. Parents are obligated by God to love and care for their children. It's not optional. God commands it. And yet, is there not an eagerness there? A joy and a delight that you get to love your kids. It's not just that you have to serve God, but that you get to. Is that how you think about your service to the Lord? Think about your Bible reading, your prayer life. Do you think of it in terms of, I have to read the Bible and pray? No, I have the privilege of serving the master, so I get to read the Bible and pray. It sh- is it an obligation? Yes. But is it a delight and something we should be eager to as we love the Lord? Of course. Of, of, of think about your faithful attendance, your involvement in the church. Do you ever have thoughts like, I have to get up on Sunday early again to go to church? Unbelievers get to sleep in every Sunday, but I have to get up, not me. No, we get to gather together freely. We come together to glorify God. Our service is unto the Lord. It is for him. It's not for man. Yes, we love one another, but ultimately, in Romans 12, Paul says your service isn't even primarily for other people. It's to glorify Christ. It's obedience and eagerness before Christ. And you know the greatest delight in serving others and serving the Lord? When you follow this example, you're following the example of your Savior. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? To serve. In the ultimate act of service, the Son of God clothes himself in a human body. He's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he takes our sin upon himself, and he rises from the dead, and he extends to us forgiveness. So now in the church and in our lives, we put this love on display. We serve because we have been served. No matter how much you serve, you will never serve God more than he has already served you. And praise God that we don't serve to pay God back. We don't serve out of this burden of obligation. We serve out of what he has done for us. Because of what he's done, not only for us, but to us. So are you a believer? Then he has died for you. He's granted you a new heart, new affections, a heart that genuinely longs to obey him, a heart that overflows with love for God who gave himself as a ransom for you. So we don't just love in whatever way we want. We don't just sketch our own blueprint and try that and see if it works. We don't take the world's blueprint and try to force it into what God says. We are God's people, God's household. So would we love one another in this way, following his blueprint, for his glory. Pray with me. Lord, at face value, these commands are very straightforward. Love others. Honor others. Serve the Lord. Be fervent. And yet, Lord, because of our 
indwelling sin, we confess to you how easy it is to neglect and to fall short in various ways. And we thank you that when we do, we have the perfect righteousness of Christ, the love of Christ shown to us and applied to us. And Lord, you are love. And because we can declare God is love, Lord, help us to love one another. I pray that this would be a church that is marked by love and honoring and encouraging and building one another up. Father, I pray for those in here who maybe have situations in their lives where it is difficult. They, they want to obey what your word says and, and a person is not receiving love. Lord, would you grant them wisdom and compassion and comfort from the Holy Spirit? Lord, help us to, as much as it depends on us, to obey you willingly and to obey you eagerly for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.